Welcome to week three. We are very excited today because our guest today is a woman named Kath, and she's a local author. And what's really cool about Kath is she's not only a gutsy voice herself, but she's also encouraging other people, especially children around her, to be gutsy. And it's really cool to hear. So um, I was super excited as well because I have something in common with Kath. She is a former English teacher. Actually, no, I take that back. I'm a former English teacher. She is currently teaching and writing and doing all kinds of cool stuff. But you'll hear about that in today's episode. So stay tuned. And today, Karen, I did want to point out to our listeners, one of our listeners asked me last week, was I actually present at any of the recordings of our guests and did I was I there or was I just sort of flown in at the end to give my opinion well rest assured listener I am always there I'm just very quiet for a change <laughs> and we love having her so enjoy today's episode welcome again to gutsy voices and this week our guest is Kath Howe welcome Kath thank you um, today, I thought we'd start by having you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do for a career. Uh, I do a mixture of things. I work as an author, um, so I visit schools as an author. I work in two schools regularly, every week. And in those schools, I run things like festivals. I do creative writing, things for children. But I'm also squirrelling myself away and writing books. So some of my time is spent in that much more solitary way, um, in my study or walking in the park, thinking about plots and working as a children's author. That sounds super fun. So, <laughs> <laughs> is that as fun as it sounds? Or is it's, it, a, it's, yes. a, it's a really nice mixture. Yeah. Yes. So tell us a little bit about your books, because in our, in our pre-interview questions, um, you talked about that you write young adult books, and actually I thought your description was really cool, about <laughs> kids in messes. Yes. So, so well, um, my category um, has been identified as tricky tweens. So, in fact, it's slightly younger than young adult. It would okay. come out as probably 9 to 12. So, in America, you'd call it middle grade. Yes. Um, and what that means is that it straddles, in Britain, the children who are um, in the last years of primary school, probably years 5 and 6 of a primary school, but also possibly years 7 and 8 of a secondary school. So, um, that's my area. That's the, that's the age of children that I work with when I'm being a teacher but it's also uh-huh. the age I'm writing for. Gotcha. And do you... Uh, oh, actually, we should ask you, what, what do you teach? Because you said you work in a couple of schools. What do you <laughs> teach in these schools? Well, in one of them, I run festivals. Uh-huh. So they're all about speaking, getting children's confidence in speaking aloud. So I teach um, public speaking, which is where a child designs a talk that they want to give about something they care about. And I'm very very concerned that they choose something they really mind about or an issue that they care about or something that's happened to them or something they're really expert in. And I um, train them as public speakers so they have cue cards and they can walk around and give a talk without reading it out or without necessarily doing it from memory. They're just using these um, cue cards with keywords on them. And I'm doing this with children as young as, say, seven or eight years old 
Um, and the children volunteer for this, or the teachers might select or suggest to some children that they take part. I might have um, 40 children I'm working with at one time, and they're all doing talks on a very wide range of subjects, maybe something like um, the history of shoes, or <laughs> nice. my terrible holiday, <laughs> or how to train a dog. Um, it could be anything, something that they really care about. So there's that's one part. Well, and actually, I want to talk to you about that, because... <laughs> I just recently found out that's not common in the curriculum here. No. And in the States, everybody does that. Yes. So that that's absolutely a core part of the curriculum. Yes. So you would never get out of school without taking some kind of speaking course. Yes. So, and I just realized that the other day. I was talking to someone. So that's really cool that you're doing that because that's, I think that's such a huge part of confidence, isn't it? it? Yes, and it so. gets a great response. And it's amazing when you start with them young. I mean, I've been doing this many years in the same school, so I get children every year, the same children, building and building that confidence. Um, and then you've got children who've watched the finals, so they come back the following year and they'll give it a go because they saw someone else last year. They've been thinking what speech they'd do. So, so I do that, public speaking. I do poetry by heart, where I'm training them to perform poetry um, that they've learned by heart, um, but doing it almost in a drama techniques kind of way. Okay. And then I do monologues and duologues, which I've written. Um, so um, in year six, which is the top end, we do monologues where they're performing alone, a piece okay. of theatre that they um, kind of, they're embodying it, they're making it lively and interesting to watch. And then in the year fives, I do duologues, which are two-handers. So they're okay. short scenes, basically, that the children have learned. The, the level of performance is amazing. And we always invite the parents to the finals. So we whittle down the numbers and then at the very end we have these finals and we invite the parents, some of the governors, and it's a big school event and the whole school, Key Stage 2, watch it. Um, okay. And it's, it's been a rolling thing that we've done for a number of years now. So now I, have, I might have 200 children taking part um, over oh, the two wow. terms. So it's, it's huge, actually. And what kind of... <laughs> I was, it sounds massive. Um, and especially, are you doing it by yourself? Yes. Okay. So the, but there's support from the teachers. Um, okay. So they might rehearse the children who are doing a poem in their class. Okay. But it's very much about um, getting those children engaged and involved. And it's very hard for a, a, a teacher within that school to focus entirely on something like mm-hmm. that. It's too big. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got the passion for it. And I've got the energy. Yeah. I come in and just do this. Yeah. Right. So it works. That's really cool. And so let's talk about the children a little bit and, and your work with them. What kind, of, what kind of growth and what kind of process, processing do you see from when they start your program to when they're performing? Because I think that confidence and, and that those changes you <laughs> see would be really interesting. A lot of it is like talking to you. So I'm sitting with a child and kind of interviewing them, I suppose, teasing out of them what it is about that experience or that thing they know about that they really care about. And I might be making notes. So we're arriving at this speech together. Um, And the speeches are, they're full of personality. They're very individual. Um, So, for example, over a number of years, I had um, a lot of um, boy public speakers in the top end of the school, so maybe year five and six. And they might do something very humorous. They might do something about... 
um, what to do if you're bored in the car, um, <laughs> you know, or um, something about their family, the quirks in their family. Um, and they're just, you discover an entertainer inside a child. You discover a skill. Some of them are quite extraordinary, um, their speeches, and they have the whole school laughing. And it's not, it isn't just a sort of comic thing. It's, they're able to marshal their ideas. They're able to develop this shape of a speech. And uh, I get children from different age groups critiquing each other as well, a lot. So I might get the youngest end working with the oldest end and watching each other and giving thoughtful feedback. And that's really good for children, I think, because mm. it's, it's a much kinder process. And, and it brings out qualities that they're not using in any other way. I like mixing those age groups a lot. I'm a big fan of that. But, um, of course, I send my children to a school where well, they're yes. mixing classes. Yes. So I, I totally agree with that. Um, but I think that's really cool. It sounds like you're actually training the next the next generation of gutsy voices. They'll be so. ready for us, I right? So. I hope so. so. So, all right. Well, let's let's also talk about, because I think, like I said, your books sound really interesting, and you mentioned that you've had a couple published, and I was yes. hoping maybe you could tell us about one, because you are targeting this tricky age, yes. where kids are having to make, you know, they're coming across some crazy situations that they have to work through, Yes. and um, yeah, I was wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about maybe one of those books that you... So that I think I'll tell you about Ella on the Outside. Okay. So, um, although I'd had educational books published, um, I've had seven books published in total now. Um, but Ella on the Outside was a bit of a breakthrough for me because um, my agent suggested that I wrote personal writing that was um, about my life and about my experiences and the things that drive me. Um, and I wrote it from the point of view of the child. And it started very much like kind of diaries. I was thinking about the experience of being new in a school and having no friends and messing up in your friendships. Like, what is that like when you starting that new school and you're completely at sea really and you're trying to work out where your friendship group needs to be and um, I remember being that girl in a school because we moved um, a couple of times when I was in those kind of key age groups so the biggest one was when we moved from Scotland to England when I was about 11 or 12 years old and I moved from a mixed primary school to a girls secondary school and the girls were absolutely horrible um, and I remember a period of just being incredibly alone and very lonely and really trying to work out, should I try and go for the really popular group of girls? Were they the right ones? Was that going to see me through? Yeah. Or was I better off finding the sort of oddballs? Were they, were they a better bet? And I remember just that feeling of not knowing that, you know, knowing that you wouldn't ever go around to somebody's house because nobody would invite you. Mm. You know, it would be oh weeks and weeks before I felt at all at home there. So I started writing this, um, Ella on the Outside, and then I, I got another idea, which basically came from doing a project um, with a group of students um, who were at Central School of Speech and Drama, and they were working on a project in a prison, and they were getting the inmates in the prison to do a folk tale and bring it to life with music, like a, a little musical, really. And uh, I had all round here to work on the plot because <laughs> they knew I was a writer and uh, we talked about this plot and at the end of the day they made these fantastic animal heads they got all these prisoners performing and these are people who were in prison for perhaps eight to ten years 
Um, so it was a very powerful project that was going to be happening in this prison. And uh, they invited me to go and watch the final performance in front of families. So um, I went along to the prison and it was all very much about you know, the security. Um, I had to have my passport. I had to hand in everything in my pockets. I had to hand in my water bottle, the tissue in my sleeve. Oh, wow. It was a very hot day. I stood in line with all these families. The children had been dressed up specially to come and watch their dads. And it was incredibly powerful mm. because I watched the children watch their dads. And I, it, it was much, for me, as an author, it was about seeing these children proud of their dad when they have little time with him and they've probably not had much chance to be proud of him. Mm. And at the end yeah. of watching these men perform and sing and you know, they were animal characters and all these things, and the children had chances to go, and, go up and stick things on um, kind of tableaus and uh, um, charts and things like that during the show. But at the end, we left these family units together and the special privilege the prisoners had was to have tea with their children. And I watched a man who hadn't been there when his child was born because he'd been in prison. I watched him with an 18-month-old and he sat and he rained paper Aww. on the head of this <sighs> tiny child over and over. He just picked up this paper and rained it down on this child's head. And he, you know, to touch their child, mm. to have their child on their knee. When they have visits, I think they're much more, they're much more limited about how much they're allowed to have an affectionate contact and it was incredibly powerful and I thought what if the girl has a dad who is not with them and she's writing to him so I started writing letters to dad um, and they became part of the story as well so um, Ella has a secret we don't know where dad is she's writing these letters we don't hear his replies but we see these um, heartfelt letters going out to dad at the beginning of every chapter so we discover what's happening to her in school but we also discover that um she's she's very lonely and missing him terribly um and that's what gave me the spur of the book really um okay. and it it was shaped once it um found a publisher but uh i think the heart of it i i sort of found by those two key things my own sort of feelings of loneliness and also the idea of the the dad somewhere else and the secret of where this dad might be. Um, and now I kind of want to go read the book. <laughs> so you sold that very well. Thank you. you. Sold that very well. But yeah, that's okay. So now, and, and your other books that you've written, are they similarly, do you draw on your own experiences yes. as well? And, and my kids, you know, so my second book um, is called Not My Fault. And that set, takes place on a school journey. So it's got two sisters. It's a two-hander between two sisters telling a chapter each. Um, and they're in a, a kind of warring situation. Their, really, their relationship's gone very sour because one of them has been injured in an accident. Um, so they go off on a school journey and everything's kicking off. And obviously these teachers are going to have to deal with whatever happens <laughs> because there are no parents on school yeah. journey. And it, obviously um, it's very common in um, our schools to have in year five and six for schools to go off for a week on a residential and for children to do new things. And some of them come back really changed. Some of them come back really affected by that independence mm -hmm. and that moment of maybe they're going on a zip wire, you know, maybe they're steering a boat around the Isle of Wight or, you know, whatever yeah. it is. But it has a big, powerful impact. And I want, so I wanted that impact, but I also wanted a really strong family 
sort of mess. <laughs> so, so you were asking about mess. I mean, yeah. it seems to me the key thing with children is that lives are messy. That, that we, I don't want to give children the impression that um, things can be always resolved with no mess. Because I think that's a lie. Mm. Um, I don't want bows on things. I, I want to say, and in fact, in Ella on the outside, I think she actually says it once. She says, um, you can still be happy even if there is some mess. Yeah. And I think, for all sorts of reasons, I think many children are reading them and, and feeling a kind of, almost like a kind of relief yes. that I haven't resolved everything. You, know, you have no idea how much that touches yeah. me today. You have no idea. You know, I, I, think, I, yeah. I don't have children of, of the age group that Kath writes for, so I decided to read both books as an adult. And I have said to Kath in the past that actually they really resonated for me. The stories are fantastic. The same way that Mary Poppins as a film is as much for a parent to watch, more so yes. perhaps, than for the child. So the books, I highly recommend them. They're Thank fantastic you. stories. <laughs> I couldn't put them down. I started Ella in my yeah. bed one morning and I literally just uh, kept going just until I finished. Yeah. Uh, I have had a lot, I've got a lot of adult readers. Um, and I, I think um, it's very, it's, that's been incredibly exciting to see the impact of it and people saying that they've used it for counselling children, mm. um, that they've had children who've had, you know, bad relationships that have happened in the playground and they've got them in a, in a group of children to say, we're all going to read and talk about these characters. Mm. It's a safe space, isn't mm. it, a book? Mm. And I think it's, uh, it can have that kind of power. I feel like that is the power of literature, isn't it? Yes. It's to transport you and see how someone else experiences exactly. something. And exactly. And shares those experiences without even having to go through them. Exactly. And yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift a little bit here, but because I loved what you said about how you can be happy even if there's a mess, right? Even yes. if it's messy. Um, you talk about, you, you told us a little bit about your past and that you, and actually you've already told us a bit about your moving around, yes. but also I wanted to talk a bit about your eczema. Yes. Because that was something you, you dealt with as a child as well. Yes. And I think that connects nicely to another story you can tell us. So yes, well. Tell us a little bit about your eczema. <laughs> Sorry. So, um, well, when I, when I was um, very, very small, I developed um, acute childhood eczema so I had the sort of eczema that um, probably sometimes there was 80% of me was eczema (laughs) so what that meant was that um, my parents tried very hard to experiment with my diet for example Um, so there were lots of attempts to try different sorts of milks when I was a really small baby but I had a very very upset digestion from almost everything so and in those days I think People had no idea quite what to do about children who had severe eczema. Um, there were steroids available, but steroids were quite harsh on the skin and they would um, make the skin uh, papery thin after a while. Mm-hmm. So I remember um, I never, my mother never had a full night's sleep for years because my eczema was so bad that um, she would hold my hands um, and sit with me. Um, I... I just, it had a profound effect on me, and, but also on my parents, I think, because it was a big investment um, of energy to keep this child well. And you get cross-infections in the skin if you've got such bad eczema. So oh. I was in hospital quite a lot. Um, I remember being in the Western Infirmary in Glasgow for many weeks. Um, 
and it, it produced presumably a kind of resilience but also mm-hmm. a bit of an isolation thing. Probably great for writers, actually. <laughs> um, but um, I remember being completely unfazed by hospitals. I am, actually. I, I mean, a great uh, plus of all of this is that I have no problem with hospitals. In fact, I really like them. And I really like the people who work in hospitals. I, I feel incredibly positive around hospitals. Because I used to go down into the um, area underneath the Western Infirmary and romp about with a whole lot of other children <laughs> who were also in for a long time. Uh, we used to be allowed ice cream sometimes. I remember my father, who worked at the university, used to come and visit me every day um, at the Western Infirmary. And uh, in fact, I've got a sad story about that. And this is <clears throat> kind of classic child memories that my father used to bring me a cake every day. He used to walk down from the university and bring me a cake, sit by my bed and talk to me about his day. And he used to bring me this cake. And I actually hated the cake. (laughs) Um, It was something with a sort of squidgy filling, like a custard or something. And I really, really hated it. But I couldn't tell him. No. So he used to go home, and I used to see the door of the ward shut. And I'd go to the bin, and I'd bin the cake every time. And then cry, just for a little while. And then I'd sit in my bed and get a book out. And, you know, that was it. But, um, yeah, I, I suppose I... I was thrilled that he brought the cake. <clears throat> it was yeah. the meaning behind bringing the cake that was important. It wasn't mm. eating it. <laughs> right, right. So, <clears throat> but it's, yeah, it's a strong memory, certainly. Oh, wow. yeah. But the eczema lasted my whole childhood. In fact, it was, I still had it at university. I mean, I, um, <clears throat> it has coloured my sort of reactions to things like holidays, like going to the seaside is a bit of a no-no if you've got a child with severe eczema. You've got oh, okay. to keep the skin covered. Mm-hmm. If you unwrap the skin, the child will just scratch it to bits. It's, it's, you've just got uh-huh. to be keeping it covered. So I remember being wrapped always, having thick tights all year round, um, having those bleeding areas behind the backs of my knees, oh. on my wrists and my hands. You know, it was just, um, it was just a permanent feature, mm. um, the discomfort of eczema. So I put it in Ella on the outside. <clears throat> and in fact, when it first <clears throat> got published, I... I mean, I asked the publisher, do you, know, do you want her to have eczema? Because, I don't, you know, it's just another thing. Um, and they said, no, no, it's, because it's real. Um, so yeah. it was it was absolutely my eczema in the book. Mm. Um, and I've had lots of contact from people with eczema, of course, um, mm. because it just struck a nerve, I think. Mm. Um, it's, not the, it's not the plot, right? Yeah. It's another of the bits of mess. <clears throat> it's there, you know, mm. in the background. Um, and I it's, it's very visible, isn't it? Not only is eczema something that is uncomfortable and you feel it and you carry it with you all the time, everybody else can make a judgment because yes. they can see it. Yes. And mm. I remember as a child in the playground, nobody would hold my hand. Mm. So you'd be playing a skipping game or you'd be you know, in a circle and people would avoid me mm. because they didn't want to take hold of my hand. And I, you know, things children would say when I was really little, I mean, I was probably only about four um, I vividly remember children sort of sort of trying to sidle away and get away and not hold onto my hand, and the oh, teacher saying, gosh. "You won't catch, catch it. it. Yeah, you won't catch mm, it." Mm. And that's actually in a way worse. Mm. Oh, uh, it kind of, it, you know, that attempt to persuade was almost worse to hear as mm. a child. Um, so yeah, it massively affects your confidence. I mean, it's like, a, it's like, you know, you come an absolute cropper if you've got eczema as badly as I had it. Um, 
but you you, you build um, some other strategies, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's that's well, what you do. And that's mm-hmm. what I was going to ask you. So, what what were your strategies? How did you how did you handle that? Um, <clears throat> I was quite indoors, kind of child. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I, I was I was physically active in riding a bike and stuff, but um, you know, I think my parents were great. They didn't they didn't take us on holidays where we sat in the sun, um, you know, in swimsuits, because there was just no possibility of doing it. Um, so we just never did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, um, I suppose, things that I gravitated towards, um, the writing, the, the creative stuff, um, art, um, those things are fantastic distractions if you're poorly. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were great for me. Uh, so I think I became not sporty, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. I identified quite quickly that I... I'd be put through a bit of a ringer going into the PE changing rooms. People would look at me changing. And certainly when I was a small child in Scotland, nobody made any allowance. Um, and I just remember that was absolutely humiliating uh, as a child, trying to cover eczema um, when you were changing for PE. Um, and I was always last. So I would try and hang back and not, not and appear. Just um, absolutely, going. yes. So those kinds of strategies are the sort of thing a child would do, for sure. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Gosh. And then, how? Like, because you, well, you said it lasted through childhood. Yes. How does that phase end, and how do you transition from that? What? Um, I mean, it, I think it, it very gradually. I had um, phases where it was less bad, and I had learned how to treat it myself. I think you, with lots of chronic conditions, you become um, the, the master of your own condition. So you. You know what triggers it. You know what... I mean, I know if I wash my hands, I have to put cream on my hands immediately. I can't leave them once um, because they'll, the skin will get irritated immediately if I don't put something on it. So it's just very, very sensitive. Um, and I think you just know what your triggers are. Mm. Um, and, of course, people accept you for yourself. So it ceases to be quite the biggest issue, um, you know, how you look, um, it, you know, obviously there are times in your life when that's very important, but there are other times when other stuff takes a bigger role. So um, that's a hell of a relief if you've got really chronic eczema. And do you remember the first people who who accepted you for for who you are? Well, my mum and dad. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess outside then, of yeah. your family. Outside the you... family. Um, I suppose it's probably when you're um, past those tricky teens, isn't it? (laughs) I think in your teens, you're so judged on how you look that it's very difficult if you've got anything that makes you stand out. I think probably once you get into the sick form, that's when it's better, probably. Um, I think I was probably quite astonished that there were things that that made me stand out that, that, you know made me good at things that weren't to do with how I looked. So that's, and just in case our listeners don't know what sixth form is, that's about 17, 18 yes, years old. when you yeah. do A-levels. Yes. Yeah. So, so, and what were you discovering then that you did well? Um, Theatre. I loved okay. acting. Um, anything to do with acting, uh, writing. Um, I love all the arts, actually. So um, I've always loved art. I paint, draw. Um, so... Those things, anything to do with creative arts, um, I would gravitate towards. I did a lot of that kind of thing at university. Yes. And then I want to take it back a little bit because you told, you gave us a little preview of a young girl who came up to you at an author talk. Yes. And I was wondering if you could share that story because I thought that was so lovely about how, 
how this experience you've had that you struggled with and you've come through and now here it is, you're, you're able to help somebody else. So will you tell us a little bit about, well, about that story? So I think when you do author things, I mean, a lot of my work with Ella on the outside and not my fault is to do with empathy, really. Um, and I do events where I'm encouraging children to think about what it feels like to be Ella. So um, I do um, a talk where I have Ella's fleece and I attach to it all the things that are said to her on her first day that are quite harsh things from other children. So it might be, why are you standing there? Or, you know, that's not what we do. Or, you know, didn't you bring one? Or So there's all these negative comments, and I get the children to, to speak them out mm. in a group. And then we, t- we pin them to a child's school fleece. Um, and then I get the children to think what they'd like to say to Ella. And we put that on post-it notes, and they say things like, you know, I really like your hat, or, you know, <laughs> would you like to come to my house to play? Or, and children are so full of heart when you do this kind of work with them. So they give me all these suggestions on post-it notes. We pin those on top of the negative laminated slips that I've brought with me. And then I get a volunteer to come up to me, and I turn the fleece inside out and get someone to put it on, and I say... Ella carries home with her everything that was said to her today. Wow. So she's got the the softer things that you said. Look, they feel softer. And I've got the sharp edges of all those things that were said to her. And this person is now wearing the fleece. They've they've got it on and and we we zip it up even though it's got all these kind of little clips in it. Um, And it's that kind of workshop that I did um, at a school in Leeds. And uh, just a child staying behind um, till everyone had gone she's not in the correct uniform <laughs> which is a thing in Ella on the outside and she's, you know, she's not in the right uniform and she just said excuse me um, I said yeah she said um, I think you wrote your book for me and I just thought oh wow and she just started to talk about her dad her eczema you know her friendships and she just talked and then I just said I did write my book for you Oh. Um, that and it's something like my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean you know you, there's a lot of talk in um, the industry and children's book writing about seeing themselves represented mm. and I mean that's the strongest ever endorsement of, of the actual things in my books but uh, you know you hope that in a, in a much broader way that children see difficulty represented and they see you know, struggling and messing up represented because um, it, it, it kind of opens up those opportunities to talk about it and to feel better about yourself. Mm. And some children feel quite badly about themselves, you well, know. And I, like, I think what you have done in your writing is what Mary and I are trying to do with this podcast. <laughs> yes, right? I it is. It is absolutely, yes. it is that sharing that and that that we all have these things that we're dealing with and we can yes. all have this gutsy voice and, and yes. deal with it, right? Yes. And I just, that story of this young young woman who, or young girl who came to you, I, that just touched me so much. I thought, oh my gosh, is there <laughs> any better compliment mm-hmm. as an author yes. than that? And how amazing It is amazing. It's a, priv- it's a massive, woman. massive privilege. It's also a massive, massive responsibility. Mm. Um, it's both. And I think you know, if I, children write to me and, and it, I like, you know, if I get a letter from a kid, 
I reply to it that day. I'm, I'm on it. You know, there's no way that's going to delay. I'm not, you know, I can delay all sorts of other things, but not that. Um, yeah. Because if they've taken the trouble, then, then you owe it to them. You've, you've taken a kind of contract mm-hmm. out with mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. and you owe them absolutely. Um, and that's lovely that you can offer that. I, my daughter <laughs> loves Harry Potter. Yes. And she wrote to J.K. Rowling once, and she mm. said, "Do you think I'll get a response?" Oh. And of course, yes. my answer needed to be, "Well, I hope you will." Yes. But the the you know the reality of that, and she didn't get a response. <laughs> However, a couple of years ago, I wrote to J.K. Rowling's illustrator. Yes. And wrote to him and said, "Is there any chance you could write to my daughter? I'm giving yes. her the book for Christmas." And he did respond. Yes. And that yes. was wonderful. It does. It means the world. And I have young to reader. say, if you want a role model for that, um, Jacqueline Wilson, absolutely amazing for responding to children and also for waiting, you know, uh, signing books for two hours after an event and yeah. waiting until the last child has left. And, and she's, you know, been a local author for, for where we are um, mm. and quite extraordinary mm. and committed to children. Mm. And, you know, you can see it. Uh, well, it sounds like you are too. Do you have loads of children who write to you? Do you get those often? You or? get some. You, yeah. I mean, I, and you get children who make things. Oh, <laughs> oh <that's laughs> like you book jackets and um, yeah, <laughs> and bookmarks and uh, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. I talked to a school. Um, they were in um, the um, Channel Islands, and uh, I did a Skype thing with them, and they had a corridor of um, work and ideas and designs and things based on my books and things like this you know they're they're extremely special mm. um it's 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 wonderful uh, very exciting yeah that's cool so um and actually oh i wanted to and i i love i love that you were doing all these things and i feel like we're talking loads about about the children that you're interacting with and stuff but i yes. kind of want to turn back to you a little bit again uh-huh. And because there was one other thing you talked about in, in, your, in your questions, in our pre-interview questions, where you talked about having a period of ill health and having to prioritize yourself. Yes. So yeah. I, I wanted to know, what, what was that time <laughs> in your life like? And, and what were the priorities you had to, you had to switch? Um, so I started my career as a full-time secondary school English teacher. We have that in common. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually think I was temperamentally just, you know, a ridiculous kind of English teacher because I was so invested and so excited and so creative. I would just burn out. Mm-hmm. So I'd yeah. get to the end of each term and I'd be completely knackered. And I know all teachers are knackered, but what I mean is that I would be un- unable to protect myself from how knackered I was mm. and ill mm. as a result. And I, um, in my early career, before I had my children, um, I worked in a school and my head of department was unwell and I took on more and I was leaving the job, in fact, and we were moving house. We were moving to here, in fact. And uh, I just remember overdoing it completely overdoing it and then going to my doctor and saying I'm feeling really wiped out and the doctor saying we'll have some antibiotics and you know do a you know um, to go some running or something like that and in (laughs) fact I was developing post-viral fatigue Mm -hmm. and so I had all these antibiotics over a whole summer and I was moving house I'd taken on far too much with my work I was starting a new job 
And I just completely was unable to start this job properly. And I lost the job, um, or, or I was on sick leave, for about six months. And I was in, in my house, lying on a sofa, unable to do very much at all. Um, and I was absolutely shattered. I mean, I was, it was really, really shocking to me um, that I was so unable to, to really um, find energy from anywhere. I, I had terrible headaches vertigo type headaches and I just had um, pain in my joints and um, I was panic attacks and it was just it was just the most horrible period of having moved house not knowing anybody and really not able to start this job properly knowing that I was kind of you know the job wasn't going to work out um, and yeah totally new place so um, I think it took a long time to actually find resources in myself to get better and one of the things that really helped was acupuncture. Um, but the other thing was just being incredibly sort of having low expectations of the day. <laughs> so I used to think, OK, I will walk up to the fruit and veg stall at the end of the road and buy a cauliflower. <laughs> and that was my day. Mm. Um, and it was extraordinary to me that I'd reached that point when I have... I'm naturally very energetic, I think. I have a lot of enthusiasm for things, but I just couldn't do it. Mm. Um, so it gradually, 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 I got back into work, um, but I was only part-time. I lost a lot of my classes for my teaching, and I didn't make the right sort of start in a school that I would want to. Um, and I think, actually, it's probably at that point that I began to think of other things that would feed me... Mm that weren't about being a teacher. And it's probably why I've ended up being a writer now, mm-hmm. because I started doing art courses. I started volunteering. Um, I worked with um, a women's centre, helping women who were learning English. Um, and I did things that, you know, if you had to let them down, you could let them down because you were volunteering. Mm-hmm. But they were still things that were nourishing you, and they were things that, that were basically a good idea. They mm-hmm. were, you know, they were going to help somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think... At that point, I probably got much more sense of how the, the really intelligent people manage their lives, <laughs> which is basically to be more balanced. Yeah. I, I learned but the hard way about yeah. being more balanced. Um, and even though now, if I do a school visit, I still get home and lie on the floor mm. and you know, think, you know, I, you know, I should not be this tired. But I put so much into, into things. It, yes. I just can't not be that person. Mm. But in teaching, it's very difficult to be creative in um, a role in teaching now um, and be a full-time teacher. I, I think it's, it's extremely difficult, and a lot of people do burn out. I, I completely identify with you. I completely identify with you. And this is not the place for me to my, tell my story. But um, absolutely. And actually, so many of my, of my teacher friends, I gosh, in my decade of teaching... I yes. saw it happen, and I'm still seeing it happen. Absolutely. And, yeah, and yes. for some reason, I and maybe I'm biased because I was also an English teacher, but I think English teachers and their energy levels and the things that you're doing and then going home and marking yes. all that, and it's all so personal. Yes. So, um, and on that vein, I want a very personal vein. How, how did you deal with stepping back from teaching? Did you did you find that hard? Because yes. I think because I found that really hard as well. <laughs> yeah. So I'm wondering how how did you how did you deal with that leaving leaving the classroom and your students behind? Yeah. And 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 coming to terms with who you are. Because yes. I think I'm still doing that myself. So I, I, <laughs> I agree. I mean, some of it is helped by being a parent. 
you know, yeah. you, you, you ha- I mean, it's a giving out and an educating role that has actually replicated in some parts of parenthood. Yes. Um, <laughs> so that helped tremendously, I think. Um, I suppose the author thing, um, what I'm trying to do is find sort of projects and events and things like that where I can connect with children still um, and I'm still using the teacher inside me. I'm still, I'm so much a teacher, really. Um, And sometimes if I um, have an event that I want to do, I'll think, but what are they going to get from that? You know, I'm, I'm constantly trying to think, well, how will that build them? Well, if they're keen writers, what am I doing about that aspect? So I think the teacher in you is just never going to go away. Mm. Um, I'm from a line of teachers, um, so it's, you know, it's right through my family line. Um, And I think it's it's a lovely thing. I mean, you know, it's a generous thing, actually, a teacher. Um, I think it's, it's an unsung thing very often. And I, you know, I had great teachers when I was at school, and I, I think it has a, a massive impact on your self-esteem. And I, I, I think I'm still managing to do both. But I do, you know, that thing you have where you think that there's still another you living the other life. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, that other me is a teacher who's working full time in a big <laughs> secondary school. But. Um, I wouldn't have had the opportunities I'm getting now if I hadn't stepped away. Mm. So I have to tell myself that thing. Um, But there's that rhythm. I do miss the rhythm of it. You know, there's a time, I always say to my husband, at the start of the autumn term, um, everyone goes back to school, and I grieve for a while. But I'm not that teacher. I I think, you know, I'd be there in front of my new form, you know, explaining about the lockers and, you know, and it doesn't go away, that feeling that, you know, there is that other me and well, I wonder I what she's doing. I still buy new pens. Maybe yes. she needs to. I still <laughs> buy new pens. Oh. I do every September, yes. So, but, um, you know, I go into several schools now. I mean, the, the other school that I work in, which I haven't particularly told you about, is um, where I, I work with um, small groups of writers um, to, you know, boost their literacy and their kind of creativity and the school gave me a lot of um, kind of leeway to, to choose how to, to work really creatively with these children. And I think if I can do projects like that where I'm there many, many weeks, I get to know these children really mm-hmm. well. And they are so excited that, like, I arrive and they've already got the room ready, yeah. you know, oh. because they've come skipping out. They've come out of break to get the room ready because I'm coming. Oh. And it is such a privilege. Mm. It's And, of course... Because I'm not doing it day in, day out, yes. my mood yes. is, it just lifts them because clearly, you know, it's, it's a special thing for me. We're all pleased we're there. Yes. That's rare. Yeah. It's yeah. rare to have that. Um, You're taking the best version of the teacher that you can possibly exactly, be. Exactly. Exactly. And they're not seeing a sour you. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, and you're getting the best of them because they want to be there. Yes. Yes. Right? Like you're, you're, you're only work, you're working with the kids who really want to be there, which and is the best wonderful. bit of teaching as well. That's fantastic. Mm. Yeah. It is. So, you know, reminding oneself of that is, is, is important too. <laughs> really cool. Well, yes, I was going to say, so this actually brings me to, or brings us to, to the next stage here, which is you talk about wanting to make a difference. And actually throughout this interview, it's so clear <laughs> that you are. Um, but I was wondering if you had the kind of difference you want to make in mind. Like, is there a specific difference you want to make? in the world around you or in these children or in your readers or any of those would be okay to address. (laughs) Um, Is there a specific difference? 
I, I think um, it's just a, a kind of reassuring voice in, the, in, the, in a child's head about how the world might be and how they might be inside it and how, um, like we say, there are still ways to be happy. So that difference is always going to be on that more personal level. It's going to be always engaging that, that reader with that book, I think. Sometimes in workshops you can see um, if you give a child support or you give them encouragement, you can see something seeming to light up. So I think anything that inspires that creative inspiration thing is, is hugely important for all of us. Uh, and there's not enough around some children that's inspiring them. So, um, but I, I, can't, I can't sort of name it more clearly than that. I, I think it's, for me, I get very excited around anything to do with creativity and imagination. And I just want to share it. I just want to see where it might go. Um, you know, it puts a spring in my step. I, um, it's, a, it's the joy that's around us um, if we can find it. And if I can kind of add to the sum of that... That's what I want to do. Uh, it, you know, it's just, um, it's a delight. Um, just as being in choirs does that, so does um, that engagement with the book, um, the, the writer's workshops, the things to do with the festivals. They're all linked in that way that um, you can see children running down the corridor to, to, to meet me rather than walking. Yes. <laughs> That's what it's about. That's, and they're coming <laughs> to share that joy, yes, right? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. So is there someone in your life who inspired this in you? Who? Um, I think it would have to be my family, um, both my my kids, um, but also um, my mum and dad, um, who are incredibly positive people. Um, and I think my mum is a, is a huge optimist, um, very much a kind of well, let's see what happens if I do this <laughs> kind of approach to life. So I think it would be her. Um, but I've got. Uh, very lively and responsive kids. Um, they always inspire me. I've had so many of my, de- my dears from my family. So, um, yeah, it would probably be then. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it just uh, makes a difference to how you're wired if you've had that kind of support and uh, encouragement from others. Gotcha. And I think that is probably a great place for us to end our interview today with you, Kath. Thank you so much. No problem. It's been lovely. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> wow. I really loved today's episode, today's interview. Kath was so much fun to talk to. And to be honest, I was a little nervous at the beginning because I knew she was an English teacher. And being a former English teacher, I was scared. What if I, you know didn't connect with her or you know didn't have those things in common but I should have known better mm-hmm. we English teachers we we have a lot in common and um, it was so much fun to be around someone who's passionate about writing and speaking and stories again mm-hmm. um, and and who shares a similar experience teaching who who got who was passionate about teaching and loved it so much and then had to stop and find a new way to incorporate it in kind of like I did mm-hmm. so it was fun to, to hear that and and not feel so alone, which is, mm. of course, what we hope with this podcast, that it reaches our listeners that, in that mm. same way. And I think so. this, what's lovely about part of our podcast is that we get to both share the story and we listen. And then this part of the, of the process for our listeners, it's just Karen and I discussing what we've learned from the interview process. And I'm sure that many of our listeners are sitting and reflecting on how they've been inspired by Kath's story. 
And I think that is the joy of hearing another human being and hearing how they've come to the end of their journey. But of course, there is no end because every story has a new chapter. And that for me is the part of Kath's story is that there are, it's multi-layered. Well, and you know what? Actually, that's a really good point because um, what our listeners can't see, we, we try to interview our guests in an environment that they're comfortable in. So um, today we were invited to Kath's home, which was really cool. And after we stopped recording, um, I almost wish I had a video camera, but you'll see it in the photo. Kath t- took us in, into her into her writing office, mm. and she has this gorgeous writing desk. And mm. she starts telling us the story of this amazing writing desk that's made out of mahogany, and she had shipped down from Dundee, and mm. it's a st- an old stand-up one. And, mm. and you can see everything about this she loves. When she mm. talks about loving creativity and that that's what brings her joy... It comes from everything, from the desk, from the space, mm. from her ideas, from her interactions with people talking mm. about it, and and that that was inspiring to mm. be around. Mm. Uh, you could feel her passion. You can. And so. very, very lucky readers of her books, and very, very lucky children who she is inspiring to uh, leave her legacy and encourage them to speak out. Absolutely. And I have to say... Her, the takeaway for me, for me, from this interview today was her, her phrase or her, her saying sentence that life is messy, but you can still be happy. Mm. Um, and that there's no, there's not always a clean ending. And Mm. I thought, oh, that I'm sticking in my pocket and holding close, um, especially as I'm dealing with a few messes of my own coming up I agree. And I think there is so much talk at the moment about snowplow parenting, and this yes. idea that we are forever scooping up and not allowing any mistakes. Because it is through the messiness of life that we truly learn to be resilient and make decisions about what to do next. Absolutely. And I think that's a timeless reminder. Mm. for Even for us as adults. Because I think, oh gosh, how many times have I tried to just be... To make sure it was perfect or not bother. Mm. Or, you know, no, actually it's okay for it mm. to be... This podcast... Is the perfect example. It started off really messy. And it's still, and it's still messy. kind of messy. <laughs> but we're, we're doing it. And we're making it. We're having lots of fun. And I think we're sharing these things that are, are absolutely worth sharing. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I love that. And I love the mess. I love the mess. And trying to clean it up and making a new mess. So, yeah. So, we are at that time now where... Mary gets to tell us about her song. So, Mary, what was your inspiration today? Well, I think it can only be one song, can't it? And it has to be Paperback Writer by The Beatles. Oh, good one. Good one. And in case you haven't seen it, we do put a link in our show notes on our website. So please feel free to pop over to our website. Um, The link is in our Instagram and our Facebook page. And you can actually click on the link to hear the whole song. Um, Of course, you can always look it up on Apple iTunes or Spotify or something. And on that note, I think we will leave you until next week. Thanks so much for listening. Raise your voice, let's